Well, we t- today return to our series in Genesis. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 49. Today we're covering verses 8 through 12. And then if you wouldn't, if you're in the building here, stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We'll start at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fold to the vine, his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord, let us pray for his blessing upon this time. Heavenly Father, we come to you once again. We praise you for your goodness. Lord, my desire in my heart today is to lift up the name of Jesus. I know that your spirit desires to do that as well, and that is his goal and desire. So I ask that you would, for the greatness of your name and for the good of the people who are listening, help me to serve you. If there's anything in me today, Lord, uh, that I am unaware of, that that I've not confessed or left unaddressed, that would keep me from serving you well, from being an instrument, a tool in your hands, would you pardon any sin? Would you move anything out of the way? Move any desires in me, Lord, that do not reflect seeking your glory and your honor and your exaltation and the good of your people. We ask that you would glorify your name among us today. In the name of the Holy One, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So as Pastor Mike prayed, we are in another election cycle, at least we're at the end of an electric cycle. And I was told at the beginning of this that there we, we had an, uh, a historic amount of people show up to voice who they thought should sit in the seats of leadership around our nation. Uh, now, we, although we have the results, if you had been like me earlier than the week, probably each day, uh, you were glued to the news. The leader. And throughout the week, of course, that narrative changed here and there as new results rolled in. But the question on everyone's mind this week was who will lead? And just like uh, we were waiting for the results to roll in, finally come to some conclusion so we could know who would be in charge for the next several years uh, in our government until the next election cycle when we'll have a chance to do this all over again. Uh, The same thing was happening in our text with Jacob's family. They were asking the exact same question. Who's going to lead? Uh, If you've been a part or participant following our sermon series over the last couple of weeks, then you know that we have come to the point uh, in the narrative of Genesis where we are at the end of the life of Jacob. Jacob lays old and at the end of his life on his deathbed, and now he wants to give his last 
will and testament as he speaks to his sons about what he will believe will happen in their futures. So Mike B. introduced us to the first, and Pastor Mike talked about the second and third sons. And from that, we found out that the first three sons of age were disqualified from inheriting the blessing of leading the family. The first because of personal immorality in his life, and the second and third because of uh, unchecked anger displayed in ways that were unhelpful. And so they were disqualified from inheriting this blessing of leadership. And so now the brothers are wondering who's going to receive the blessing of leadership and the birthright to receive a double portion of what dad has for us. This week we'll address the blessing and in the weeks to come we'll address who receives the birthright. My goal for this message is twofold and it's simple. One, to show you how this text leads us to Jesus and two, how you need to respond to him in light of what this text teaches us about Jesus. So this week we're looking at what Jacob is saying to Judah. You remember Judah's life, if I give you just a summary of it, it was a sordid past. In his earlier life when he was a younger man, Judah was the sort of man that was willing to sell his younger brother Joseph into slavery for his own personal gain. But as he grew older and there were some life experiences and God worked in his life and in his brother's lives, Judah has a change of heart such that when he is an older man, he decides to be willing to sacrifice himself and his own personal safety for the good of his younger brother who was also favored like Joseph Benjamin. Judah had become a changed man. Now, unlike his other three brothers in which something in their past influenced how their father spoke about them, in the case of Judah, none of that comes to play. Jacob brings none of that to the fore in what he says about Judah's life. Instead, he gives to Judah what his role will be in the family and gives us three important images that describe the future of Judah and ultimately his descendants. And what I want to first do is start by revisiting the text and explain what it is that we have about Judah that's said from Jacob and hopefully have some idea about this enigmatic imagery that we see in the text. Let's return to verse 8. Jacob opens by saying, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. In this verse, Jacob makes it clear that he envisions that the blessing of leadership will now fall to his fourth eldest son. He will be the one who will take on the leadership in Jacob's absence of the family. And the others will ultimately come to a place at some point in the future where they will praise their brother, ultimately because he will have victory over his enemies. And how will he do that or his descendants do that? Jacob goes on to tell us in verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. And here we encounter the first characteristic of, of Judah, uh, of what's going to describe him and his descendants. It's lion imagery. The imagery is of a lion who has been successful in the hunt that brings back its prey to the den and there celebrates. And because it has been successful, who would dare approach a creature of such strength and power? 
the imagery of royalty and strength. And this is what Jacob applies to Judah and his future descendants. They will be a tribe of royalty and strength. And as a result of Jacob's words or characterizing uh, Judah in this animalistic way, the symbol of the tribe of Judah becomes the lion. And it's from this very text where we draw that concept, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then Jacob goes on to shape out what ultimately this leadership will look like in the future of Judah's family. What will this lion-like leadership become? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Please notice in the text that there are two symbols of royal leadership in the text, the scepter and the ruler's staff. And at some point it will come because of what we have in the text to a specific descendants. There's a, a singularness here of one person in focus who will embody this lion-like leadership. What Jacob envisions here is at some point in Judah's future, there will arise a king from his line. One author by the name of Gordon Winham put it, put it this way. This line is predicting the rise of the Davidic monarchy and establishment of the Israelite empire, if not the coming of a greater David. And what Jacob envisions for this future ruler from Judah's line is a line that will, or a rule that will endure. Now, the next phrase that we have in the verse which says, until tribute comes to him, is the most difficult phrase to interpret in the entire book of Genesis. There are a plethora of views as it relates to what this line might mean. But what I'm going to do is go with the way that the ESV has interpreted the text here and talk about what this possibly might mean in light of the next phrase that's in the verse. Author Victor Hamilton sums it up this way. This phrase forecasts the tribute and subjugation of the world to Judah or to one of Judah's own. So what ultimately Jacob has in mind is that one day out of Judah, because he has been appointed to be the leader of the tribes, there will arise a king. And out of this, this king will ultimately command the nations of the world and he will sit as ruler over all the peoples of the earth. And thus we have the final imagery in the text. Binding his foal to a vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. The final imagery that Jacob gives us of this future king is of him riding into his vineyard on a donkey. And there, because of his rule, the vineyard is abundant, so much so that he's willing to take his donkey and tie it to a choice vine. That is, because we do know what donkeys would do if you put them next to food. They'll eat up the food. But this king is not worried because he has so much abundant, it's okay if his beast eats it because he has so much of it. Now, there may also be a hint in, in the text from the way the, the word works out there in the text that there might be the concept of for those who are under his rule, that there is abundance for them, and for those who are his enemies, that there is a time of fearful punishment. That might be hinted at in the text. The last line, of course, is an ancient way of describing beauty. Probably some not descriptions we would use to describe someone we love today or wanted to compliment. We wouldn't use these terms, but for them, this was the way they would compliment people. And so this is describing the beauty of that figure who will arise 
someday. So with all of what we have learned so far, let me sum it up this way. Jacob's blessing on Judah ultimately gives us an expectation for leadership to come from Judah in the form at some point of a powerful king that will rise and bring in a time of abundance and also as well be praised by his people. Now, how does this blessing sit within the narrative of Genesis? We've already been given royal expectations throughout the book. When God, uh, if you remember back in chapter 17, was talking to Abraham about his future, one of the things that he told him was that kings would descend from him. And likewise, he went on to say, because you know Abraham had children from three different women, his wife Sarah from her would descend kings, which meant it would be through the line of Isaac. And so we're, we're expecting that. And then when Jacob comes on the scene, God tells him as well that kings will descend from him. And in Isaac's blessing of Jacob, what he hopes for Jacob as he talks about the future of Jacob is that at some point the nations of the world will be subjected to his dominion and rule. These concepts then are played out in Judah's line. One author sums it up this way. In some, the blessing of Judah in the context of Genesis is, the, is an irrevocable expectation for a coming king. He will rule over Israel and the nations in the last days. That is, as the climactic event of the human drama that has been initiated in the book of Genesis. Now, how does this blessing that we find out about this expectation take form in human history? How did it really play out? Play out? Well, a number of years ago, Pastor Mike and I had a, a time to... to uh, privileged by the, the church's privilege to allow us to go and travel to Chicago. And we uh, there were going to a, um, a conference uh, for multi-ethnic pastors. And, and we had a chance to, to ride on the train to, to be able to save the church money, to be able to get where we were. We didn't rent a car, and we decided to ride the train. And being from the South, riding on trains is not part of my experience. This was a new experience for me. We don't have things developed like it is in the North like that. We ride buses and drive cars everywhere we want to go. But this train was a nice new experience. And there were a number of things that I remember about the train ride, but two things that really stood out to me that's relevant for this morning that I'll use to, to illustrate what we're going to do is it's one, I noticed that when we were riding the train up on the, the side, there was this rail and it had the whole line laid out and it had all the names of the stops that made. So I noticed that there were multiple stops along the way. And then at some point there was a last stop. There was an end of the line. Today, I want to take you and get off the train at the first stop for a few minutes, and then I'm going to take you to the end of the line, and we'll stop there. So first, let me take you to the first stop, and let's get off the train there. Hundreds of years after the life of Jacob and Judah, when they had long since rested with their fathers, there arose a prophet in Israel by the name of Samuel. And under the direction of God, at some point, Samuel visited the house of a man named Jesse, who happened to be the descendant of Judah. And under the direction of God, he poured, poured oil on the head of an unexpected young man, the youngest of the sons of Jesse by the name of David. And God selected him to be the king over Israel. And he became the first king from the line of Judah. And we see as he was rising to power that he won many victories in battle for which the people ultimately praised him. And that's why he had this conflict with Saul. You probably remember one of those great battles. He stepped onto the field of battle with a giant from Philistia named Goliath. He was from Gath. 
and he did what nobody else in the army had the courage to do. He operated in the power of the Spirit of God and slew the great giant and brought victory to the nation and went on to win many other victories. And as a result of that, the people then praised this great king. And so he becomes the first fulfillment of Judah's blessing that he received from Jacob. And David seems to have understood things in this way. Because at the end of his life, when he was appointed the next king who ultimately would be his son, Solomon, he said this about himself. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from among my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader, and in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's son, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And we see this idea celebrated and echoed in different places like Psalm 60, verse 8, Psalm 78, verses 76 through 78, Psalm 108, verse 8, and a variety of others. They celebrate the Davidic monarchy. And the reason why this is important, why Jacob's words matter, is because ultimately what David tells us is that it wasn't just a man talking. God was at work when Jacob selected Judah. God was the one selecting Judah. And because of that, we see that play out in David's life when God ultimately, while he sits as king, makes him a promise of an enduring dynasty and of an heir that would ultimately come that would have an established reign that would last forever. And so this expectation then is picked up throughout Scripture that some kind of way this blessing that was given to Judah would be fulfilled by one of David's sons as he would rule over the nations and bring in a time of great abundance. That's why you read Psalms like Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Psalm 110, among others. But what we find out is that as each one of David's son takes the throne, they never, ever realize the fullness of Judah's blessing. Why? Because they all fall into sin. And because they fall into sin, they, fate, they lack to be faithful to God. And so the promise of Judah is never fulfilled. And so the people of God who are in the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah ultimately hold out hope that one day there will be an heir of David who will arise that will be faithful to God. And so that the blessing of Judah might ultimately come that this heir would rule over all the nations of the world. And God kept that hope alive because he catalyzed it by giving the promises that one day that person would ultimately come from the line of Judah and ultimately from the line of David. We refer to that person as the Messiah, the one who is anointed by God or in the Greek, the Christ. And we see promises of this in places like Isaiah 9 or Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. Notice what the text says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. When we come to the end of the Old Testament, we find disappointment there because the line of kings, their rule is broken because of sin. And so they end up 
just anticipating that one day a heir will arise. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you've wanted something and waited for something, and it seemed like it would never come. It's probably like kids at Christmas who, although as the year begins, they anticipate Christmas, but it seems like it will never arrive. And so we come to the final stop along our train ride as we come to the end of the line with the opening of the pages of the New Testament, and we are introduced to a man who is a descendant from Judah and a descendant from David. That's why the genealogies at Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 are so important to the narrative of what's going on. It tells us that Jesus of Nazareth is the rightful descendant of Judah and the rightful descendant of King David, which gives him the right to inherit and sit on David's throne. And we find out about this man, Jesus, from the eyewitnesses' lives of those who watched his life, that unlike the other sons of David who had all preceded him, he does not break faithfulness with God. He never sins against God. And as a result, at his baptism, he's anointed with the Spirit of God and goes about doing good and shows that he has been anointed like David with the Spirit of God and is preaching, teaching miracles and casting out of demons. And at the end of his ministry, he dons a donkey and rides into his vineyard, Israel. And there he defeats the greatest enemies of humanity. He defeats the forces, the spiritual forces of evil. He defeats sin, and he ultimately overcomes death. That's the reason why the Paul, Apostle Paul, I believe, wrote these words in Colossians. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, Satan is defeated because of what Jesus did on the cross. And thus we discover from John's vision and revelation that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise that Jacob made to Judah so long ago by being the real lion of the tribe of Judah. Notice what one of the elders says to John in his vision. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, how does he conquer his enemies, at least initially, as in his first coming? Uh, when we hear the line of the tribe of Judah, we expect military imagery might exercise over his people, but that's not how he conquers, at least initially. Notice what the text says in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The lion of the tribe of Judah is also the very lamb of God. He conquered as is expected of his people in the same way we will conquer. He conquered by sacrificing his life to pay for our sins and then by being raised from the dead. And that's why at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus makes a astounding statement after his resurrection to the disciples who had gathered. He said to them that all authority in heaven and earth had been given into his hand. And it's because of what he did, how he conquered his enemies, that God did something miraculous and outstanding for Jesus of Nazareth. Paul summed it up with the hymn this way. Philippians chapter 2, you know it well. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we come to the end of the Bible, we find that there is the expectation of the return of Jesus. And in that moment, he will fully realize the blessing of Judah as he subjugates all the nations of the world to his rule. And as he ushers in that time of great abundance that we refer to as the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I've spent my time today mostly trying to show you how we, this Judas blessing gives us the expectation of a coming king from the line of Judah who will rule the nations and bring in a time of, of abundance. And I've tried to show you from the text how ultimately those who witnessed the life of Jesus as he lived out his life and contemplated what Scripture said shows how they believe and Scripture and God affirms that Jesus is the appointed and anointed king that Jacob anticipated from Judah's line and ultimate fulfillment. With that said, we must ask the question then, what are the implications of Jesus being king? There are global implications and there are personal implications. First, let me draw your attention to one of the global implications. We see it in the book of Acts chapter 17 after Paul has shared the gospel and it's been rejected by those who are in the synagogue and he then shares it with the Gentiles and they respond to the gospel and there's some hostility by those who do not accept the gospel. 17 says this, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. See, the enemies of the cross understood the political implications of our message about what we're saying about Jesus. They understood that we are declaring that there is another ruler of the world who has greater authority than any other ruler that sits in power now. And because of the reality of sin and how pervasive it is in humanity, all human governments have been corrupted by sin because all humans have been corrupted by sin. And there then stands the need for all human governments to be replaced by the righteous rule of Jesus. And that's ultimately what we see playing out at the end of the book of Revelations is that all human governments will come to an end. Why will they come to an end? Because they never have been ruled in righteousness. And so God will set up his government and rule the world in righteousness through Jesus. And for those who have been his faithful servants, he will distribute part of that rule to them to share in it as he reigns over the world. And that's why I tell you, don't put your hope in human governments because there is a greater government coming. But there are also personal implications. You can give him a hand and clap. That's all right. God's plan is worthy of a hand clap. That's all right. I didn't come up with that plan. That's God's plan. <laughs> then there are personal implications for our lives, and I would like to touch on three in our brief time and a few moments we have left together. First, we see from the text that God has appointed Jesus as king of the world, and that will be fully realized at some point in the future. That's the only prediction I have for you. Some point, Jesus will return and set up his government over the world. 
but that does not mean that we are participating in his reign right now. If I were to put that another way, it's like this. Just because Jesus is king does not mean he's your king. It's kind of like when I've heard people say when a sitting president is in office, they say, he's not my president. He may be president of the United States, but, but, but for me, he's not my president. And so the same thing is true of Jesus. He's king whether you like it or not, but he might not be your king. In order for him to become your king, you must come to him in repentance and faith. That's the only way. Now, you might ask in response to that, why should Jesus serve as my king? I have other choices, and I might want to choose a different. And I believe the elder in the vision of John has already answered the question for us. When he said that there was a search done, resumes were checked, credentials were checked, character was checked. They searched in heaven. They searched on the earth. They even went down to hell and searched in hell, and no one was found worthy. And that's why John began to weep because God's unfolding hand for history was held. And he said, they've done the search and no one has been found. The elder said, but wait, there is one. And his name is Jesus and he has conquered and overcome. Why should Jesus sit as your king? Because he's the only one worthy in heaven, on earth or under the earth. No one else is worthy to rule but Jesus. From the blessing of Judah, we see two more personal implications of the life. One is that King Jesus ought to be praised for his accomplishments. For here, I think about sports analogies. For me, I'm not a huge sports fan. I don't know all the different things. I often have to talk to Pastor James and Mike Bongo and, and Pat to fill me in on the stuff so I can kind of know what's going on. And they give me the facts because they know them well and they're able to talk about them. But one of the things I notice, you know, is when I come to the Super Bowl, I watch the Super Bowl, and I, and I watch how enthusiastic people are their teams. They'll paint their bodies. They'll paint their faces. If their team starts to lose, they'll weep, and they'll cry, and they'll agonize, and the rest of their life, they'll be depressed for about a week or two. But, oh, if their team wins, even if it's just by one point, It'll be as though the world, the sun has broken through. All the world has been corrected. The whole world has been set right. And they have entered heaven's gates. And they began all week long to stick bumper stickers on their cars and honk their horns and have parades and praise their team. And this is the part that gets me. All that the people have done is run up and down the field and score more points than another team. And unless you bet it on a game, the likelihood that your life is going to change as a result of that game is it won't change at all. You wake up the next day, and it's the same old, same old for you. Other than the fact that your team has won, you can go have some bragging rights. But oh, when Jesus stepped onto the scene, he changed some things for humanity. He stepped onto the scene of sin that we couldn't address on our own that kept us out of relationship with God. He dealt with it through by sacrificing his life. And the forces of evil that held us bound in the powers under the rule of Satan, Jesus stood up and said, I'm greater than he, and broke his power over us. And then that great enemy that we all fear, the, the, the one that brings us to the, the long home that said there is no return for man. And we all know that day is coming for us. Jesus said, nope, there's another way out. I'll make the way out because I'll open the doors of resurrection and I'll stand out on new resurrection ground. And I'll give you hope because what God has done for me, I'll do it for you. And that's the reason that he ought to be praised. And that can be done in all kinds of ways. It can be done in personal and corporate prayer. You can do it through musical expression, through singing, exaltation, uh, exaltation or literary expression. But the idea is that you praise God for what he has done for every tribe, nation, and tongue 
through Jesus Christ. He is worthy because he has won the victory that nobody else could win. Lastly, I come to verse 10, and there's what the text tells us in verse 10, that, G that Jacob says to, to Judah uh, that the obedience of the peoples would be to him. We owe to this ruler, to this great king, our obedience. And we realize through Jesus' own words that when we obey him, we show our love and loyalty to him. In one of the texts in Luke chapter 6, we find these words as Jesus talks to those who want to speak wonderful titles about him but don't want to obey him. Notice what he says to them. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? See, it's obedience that shows our love for Jesus and our loyalty to him as our king. What might that obedience look like? It could take a variety of forms. We could spend the rest of the week talking about all the ways in which we could be obedient to Jesus. But let me just give you a few examples of what this might play out like in life. So my wife and I have taken the time over numerous occasions to study Paul Tripp's study, What Did You Expect? A Marriage Study. And we've done it with ourselves and with other families we found to be a great blessing. If you haven't, I would encourage you, if you're a married person, to invest some time in going through this study. But one of the things that stood out to me, and it stood out to me every time we were in this study, was something that Paul Tripp said that dealt with my life for me. And that was this. He said, listen, our life is not comprised of large moments of life. They're made up of all the little moments of life. And if Jesus is going to be king in your life, that means he must be king over all the little mundane moments of your life that you live every day. Now, the way that he played this out in marriage was that he played it out in the venue that God, uh, Jesus has to rule then over my thoughts, my attitudes, my actions and words in relationship with my spouse. So ultimately, if Jesus is my king, then it all influences how I think about, feel about, respond to, and care for my wife. It ought to inform how I feel about when I get home and I don't want to do any chores or participate, that the rule of Jesus ought to motivate me to help out around the house. It ought to motivate me in my generosity in the way I treat and respond and respect my spouse. But here's another example, James chapter 3. James talks about this idea of the tongue and how often, like a rudder on a ship, it's a small part, but it controls the direction of one's life. Pastor Mike talked about this last week, but I will just remind you of what he said last week. That there's a reality that if Jesus is ruling over all of your life, that must, he means he must rule over your tongue as well. And that means that in this tense political climate, that we, uh, if we're going to follow the rule of Jesus in light of what James teaches us. That means that we cannot go around in this political climate, no matter how much we disagree with somebody else's political ideology, demonize them, curse them, and say bad things about them, and then turn around and try to bless God on Sunday with our praise. Because you cannot have words of cursing and then words of blessing. You can't have poisonous waters and clean water flowing out the same mouth. Not if Jesus is ruling over your tongue. It doesn't matter how much you disagree. They are made in the image of God. And for you to discredit them is to speak badly about the God who has made them. If Jesus is your king, you'll control your tongue. And you, like Pastor Mike said, control your fingers on a keyboard as well. If he's your king. But let me give you one more example that we talked about this, and I mentioned this before in our community group. We're studying about how a believer is to work in an environment. Paul said to the Colossians, and he says to Titus as a pastor, listen, work is a part of God's good design for people. But how you work is ultimately designed by how you view Jesus as the one who's over your work. 
So you'll either be lazy at work or treat work as an idol if you don't view Jesus as your king. And so how you work is influenced by the fact of whether or not Jesus is ruling in your life. And so how you go to work each day and what you do at work each day and how you reflect and engage people no matter what's going on, whether that's a, your job is managing a home or homeschooling your kids or you're an employee or you're a manager or you're an a, a owner or an employer of people, whatever it is, it ought to be under the rule of Jesus. And that means it ought to drastically change the way that you engage in that practice because Jesus rules your life. See, there's a simple reality that the Scriptures teach us, and it is this, that we cannot live in rebellion to the commands of Jesus and his apostles and then believe that Jesus is functionally our king. See, we can be like some of those in Israel's day. We can serve him with our lips here on Sunday. But if we live in rebellion on Monday, then our lives, like Paul says about some Christians, will deny the fact that Jesus is really our king. And so I, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, obedience is a crucial part of how you live out and show the fact that Jesus is the one that you serve as king. Now, as Pastor Mike mentioned earlier in the, the service today, the reality is that we have a chance, if you've not taken the survey, if you want an objective look of how you're doing in your obedience to Jesus, take the survey. It's convicting if you'll be honest about where you are, not where you want to be, but if you're, you're honest about who you are, it, it'll give you a sober reality, a good check to say whether or not where you think you are where you want to be. And if not, it's just an encouragement to say that I need to continue to pursue, like Paul said, I've not yet attained that for which I was called, but I continue to press towards the mark. That's the goal for the believer, continue to press toward the mark. Let me close with the words of Oswald Chambers. He said this, Am I learning how to use my Bible, the way to become complete for the master's services, to be well soaked in the Bible? Some of us only want to exploit certain passages, but our Lord wants to give us continuous instruction out of his word. Continuous instruction, and I would add application of that instruction, turns us from simply being hearers of the word into disciples of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I close with this question. Is Jesus your king? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word as we contemplate these realities. Lord, there is an objective fact that Jesus is king and he rules and he will rule on the earth at the appointed day that you have determined and set by your own sovereign decree. And we await that day. We pray for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. But until that time, Lord, we, we desire to participate in your rule and demonstrate to the, that to the world around us. We know that we won't execute that perfectly, but by reliance on the Spirit of God, reliance on your word, reliance on the community of believers that we call the church. We know, Lord, that you can help us like Paul continue to press forward in our journey to show our obedience out of love and loyalty to the rule and the kingship of Jesus. We declare he is our king. May our lives reflect that as we live each day. We ask these things in his name. Amen.